out the darkness. Sweet King Martin, sweet Queen Coretta, sweet Brother Malcolm, sweet Queen Betty, sweet Mother Mary, sweet Father Joseph, sweet Jesus. Sweet baby Jesus, sweet baby Jesus. Yo, welcome to Uncultured Bias. My name's Kamara Williams. I'm your host. Uh, you know what? You know how we like to do on this opening, man? We try to get a song that uh, it's going to match the energy of that topic. And, you know, uh, watch the Throne album, Kanye, Jay. Uh, they made a song with Frank Ocean uh, called uh, We Made It in America. Uh, one of uh, the dopest tracks, but... For me, I felt like that was apropos because uh, what made in America <laughs> is uh, many things. You know, we have what apple pie, you know, jazz music, right? Uh, baseball. And uh, one of the also things is the chattel slavery. Not, not actually like slavery didn't start in America. We know that, right? But um, just the concept of uh, chattel slavery and how it was written into laws. Um, in the new world. And um, it's actually become a fascinating topic, not slavery per se, but really everything that's going on and um, including this race and uh, critical race theory, I think, is one of the things that we're uh, fascinating with with the country this week. You know, a lot of people are like, how did we get here? And for me, I have to say that we have to start um, in... 1970. Oh, no, not 1970. 1870. The right 70s, right? Because in 1870, what actually happened, uh, we just came off of this weird war called the Civil War. And in 1865, obviously, um, the, uh, the Southern Army, uh, Southern Confederacy, um, acquiesced to the Northern demands and uh, forfeited their right to succeed from the Union. And they rejoined the Union. And then at that point, um, you know, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment was created. The 15th Amendment obviously coming into, um, coming into law that gave uh, African Americans the right to vote. And so we'll get to that in a moment, like why it's the importance of the 15th Amendment. But really what happened in 1870 was this thing uh, – called the lost cause theory. And the lost cause theory was actually a fascinating uh, concept that was created because what a lot of uh, Southerners started to realize at that time was that, you know what? With the abolition of slavery becoming the law of the land in 1865 and becoming harder and harder for Southerners to justify the purpose of slavery or of the war, uh, uh, Confederate generals and one time commander of, of the United States um, 
uh, Confederate veterans claimed that we cannot justify the South in acts of succession. We will go down in history solely as uh, brave but impulsive, rash people. So we have to re- resurrect the myth of the Southern of the Southern cause. And this were that that point we have to create the myth of the lost cause. Now the lost cause thing, you know, is something it's got six main components, right? Uh, the first one being the important myth of succession is uh, the war was created uh, not because of slavery, but of succession. And it was the co- that was the cause of war and the state succeeded, uh, seceded from the union to protect their rights, state rights, protection of state rights. We always hear that. That's still something current, right? Then the second tenet was slavery was portrayed as a positive good. Um, obviously, enslaved people who weren't just submissive and, um, you know, they were just submissive and they were ha- happy and they were faithful to the masters. Now, you might be saying, Kamara, that's not, that's not even relevant. Why are we even talking about that? But, well, in 2019, the Texas legislator was still uh, having books that, that had um, <laughs> the myth that slaves and masters were both operating in the same um, in, in a in a work environment, they called slaves workers in actual textbooks to high schools. Right. The third tenant being the Confederacy was only defeated because the northern states uh, numerical advantage in both men for both men and resources. And the Confederate army was not so much defeated, but they were overwhelmed with um, lesser resources. Of course, this creates the narrative that, you know, there's no way the South didn't lose. We just you know, we decided, listen, we're we don't have the same resources and it. We're just going to go ahead and move on to another Another issue, right? Sounds a little bit better than losing. The fourth um, tenet, which is really important, is that Confederate soldiers are portrayed as heroic and gallant and saintly. Um, and after the surrender, they retain their honor, which goes into the fifth tenet of you know Confederate generals and soldiers being sanctified as lost cause heroes, and their death and their symbols became those of a uh, of a cult figure. In fact, there was a, something of a uh, the cult of Lee was um, revert revered by uh, many Southerners, and he was considered the quote-unquote second Washington. Now, you might say, Kamara, why is that even important? Because, well, in that sphere, it was how the Confederate, you started seeing this movement of propping up of Confederate statues and reframing of the narrative of um, the Civil War. Okay, Kamara, well, that's not important. What about, you know, what the sixth tenant? What is, you know, what about the sixth tenant? Well, the sixth tenant was that Southern women were also steadfastly supported the cause and sacrificing their men and time and women and set their time and resources to support their soldiers. And it include the idealized imagery of Southern women being pure and saintly. And which was ironic because Southern women at the time were the biggest proponents of the lost cause, creating the Daughters of the Confederacy and many other institutions that purported this ideal of uh, of slavery. Now, again, Kamara, you might be an alarmist and another stuff is important, but maybe it is because by the time it happened, by this time that the this lost cause started to take form in the country by 1920. This uh, 1920, interesting time, um, a poll c- uh, conducted by the popular newspaper at the time said 75% of Americans at the time thought slavery wasn't that bad and that the Civil War was just about the South wanting to secede for state rights. In fact, in, in, you know, going five years prior to that, 1915, right, uh, a movie came out called The Birth of Nation. And the president at the time held a screening on the White House lawn saying that, you know, this film was a... Um, historical uh, was an historical landmark, and that it was in fact um, 
history written in lightning. And unfortunately, it was very true, right? So now you just started seeing this concept of reframing of history. And you say, well, Kamara, that stuff is not important because that stuff not, is not, it's not, not relevant. Well, trust me, we'll get there. Because it, what soon ended up happening was that also in the 1920s, 1930s, you started seeing laws creating these uh, laws that were um, disproportionately affecting black Americans, right? Redlining laws, loan, loan, uh, loan, loans, uh, laws that uh, concern, uh, concentrated surrounding loans, right? And it, would, it became this perverative uh, concept of subjugating black Americans within this country, because at the idea that black Americans were not considered um, equal, they're actually considered separate but equal. Well, Kamara, now, they, now you're going into a history that's not relevant. I get it. But you know what ended up happening with separate but equal? A lawyer by the name of Thurgood Marshall challenged this concept by actually presenting the idea that institutional, institutionalized racism and bigotry is one of the proponents of, uh, of, uh, of Jim Crow law. Now, how is, this, how is this important? Because remember I mentioned in 1870 they created this 15th Amendment that men, and, it, and you couldn't actually, um, and part of the, you had the right to vote, whatnot. Well, the federal standard at that time, 1870, that you could not include, have race as a standard of uh, the basis to discriminate against voting. But the Jim Crow laws at the time did not actually have race as a standard of voting. Jim Crow laws just said you couldn't do literary tests. Jim Crow law just said you couldn't, you had to do poll tax. Jim Crow law just said you, could, you had to figure, uh, books had to be different. It didn't incorporate race. It just said that, you know, separate but equal. And it wasn't in, until Thurgood Marshall challenged that concept with the idea that, can, with the idea of dolls being placed in front of uh, children and showing that institutionalized racism and bigotry um, had a, a proponent effect in how we viewed ourselves in society. Some actually would call that one of the clear, the earliest methods of critical race because he was taking a concept of law and society and incorporating it into law. Now, of course, critical race theory didn't really, uh, didn't really crop up until um, in the 1970s, right? And then so in the 1970s, you had legal scholars coming in and saying that, hey, let's evaluate how law and society intersect um, and intersect with economics and race and class. Now, you might say, Kamar, okay, what, is that, what does that have to do with currently? Well, ironically speaking, is that this concept of attacking the narrative of slavery, the narrative of history, the narrative of how we see ident America identifies itself, has something that's been pervasive even since the 1920s, as we mentioned, because even in that time, America was still had a movement of anti-intellectualism, even to the point where they would take textbooks and say you could not use Charles Bearden books because we, don't, we didn't want to institutionalize socialist or um, anti-American ideals. Again, Kamara, what does this have to do with today? Well, five days after the January, January 6th um, insurrection, a think tank by the Heritage Foundation came by and came have had a think tank uh, discussion talking about, and I'm going to give a quote here, it, with the panel discussion was about the new intolerance and the grip on America surrounding critical race theory. Five days after January 6th. 
So then at Heritage Foundation, along with other think tanks, created a movement that took that took focus on critical race theory, and it started to attach itself onto different initiatives throughout the country, thus embarking on different state houses, creating a legislation or laws that would attack and re- reframe the idea of history, including you know, our current sitting governor in Florida. So this is where we're at. And in joining me in the discussion, I know there's a longer monologue than usually what I usually have, but I wanted to lay a foundation. And I'm going to have some brothers on here that are going to actually ex- help me walk through this idea of critical race theory, politics, law, and how we intersect with that. But before we do all that, I want to actually just say thank you, everybody, for listening to this podcast. And if you are on Apple, continue to rate the podcast on Apple um, with a five-star rating and re- review. I've also asked that you guys would continue to share the podcast with your friends, um, both on social media and in the text message. We always say that sharing is caring. And we'd like to give a shout-out to our sponsors of Compass Tax Advisors, uh, mycompasstax.com, and you can contact them at 850-273-7193. Okay? And you could also, if you're in the market for real estate, check out Keystone Global Real Estate at 407-680-8510. That's keystoneglobalrealestate.com. And, of course, if you're in need for probate or estate planning or guardianship, you can contact the Smith & Williams Trial Group at 888-798-4529. All right. We have gotten past the an early portion of this program, and we want to go ahead and bring in people who are a lot smarter than I am in this uh, topic. Uh, I'm going to start off with uh, I'm going to start off with uh, my my frat. All right, Terrence, are you still with me? I'm here. All right, thank you for being so patient, man. Um, go ahead and introduce yourself to the uh, listening public. Well, good morning, everyone. I am uh, currently the Vice Chancellor of Academic Affairs at Southern University at Shreveport in Louisiana. I also hold uh, the title and engage in the work uh, as full professor of computer science with a joint appointment in our education division. But I'm also the director of our academic center uh, the Center of Critical Race Studies. So I come to this discussion with three different lenses, um, one as a university administrator, one as a faculty, and then one as a social uh, activist in the work um, to enlighten, empower, and expand our consciousness around the ways in which um, we engage in various structures in our American society. Very good, very good. Dr. Terrence Kidd, I appreciate you joining us. Um, he's coming all the way, as he said, from Louisiana. So um, so we, uh, we appreciate you. And in studio with us is actually a first-time guest, but um, he is a loyal listener on the show and a good friend of mine. Um, and I had to bring him on. Uh, because we always have these after I do a podcast he's always texting me like his thoughts and you know they're very active thoughts and I'm like man we got to get you on so um, I thought this would be a great opportunity uh, Lyndon go ahead and introduce yourself man 
Hello, everybody. My name is Lyndon Carter. And first off, I just want to say thank you to Kamara for having me on. Um, I really love your podcast and I really appreciate your engagement on these topics. Uh, so my name is Lyndon Carter. I am a attorney at Darden Restaurants here in Orlando, Florida. I am an alum of Morehouse College and Duke Law School. But uh, just a little bit more about me. I'm a sixth generation Floridian. Uh, we can trace my family's roots and lineage all the way back to slavery. Um, and uh, I was born and raised here in central Florida. And and so I say that because uh, I have a perspective as being, you know, active in the corporate American community, you know, I'm at a fortune 500 company, um, and in our legal department, but I also have the perspective of, you know, being a black man in America, um, and, you know, kind of having experienced uh, a lot of the things that we, I think are going to talk about firsthand. So I'm just really excited to engage in this topic. And I'm glad that uh, this is something that we are talking about, even if everybody can't be on the right side of history. Yeah, no doubt, man. I appreciate you, Linda. I appreciate you, uh, uh, Terrence. So I'm going to start off with a joke here. Uh, Linda, man, you're around two, you're around two alphas, man. And you're Kappa, man. So I don't know how you feel. <laughs> well, I, you know what? Um, I feel yeah, well, I don't know if blessed is the word, but you know, I have a, <laughs> I have a lot of love for for you know um, my brothers wearing black and gold, and um, you know, uh, obviously, you know, if you know your history, uh, you know that um, you know the origins of Cap Alpha Psi actually um, predated um, 1906. Oh, but, here we go. But you know. Um, the, the truth of the matter is, is that I have, you know, a tremendous amount of respect for, you know, the men of Alpha Phi Alpha um, and all of their contributions just to society. So uh, everybody can't be the noops. And um, that's OK. There is a fraternity, I think, for everyone. So what well, I appreciate that, you know, um, how do you know a Kappa graduated from college, though? You don't know. I, I, I guess he had a degree. His Social Security benefits kicked in. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Yeah. I actually came up with that joke last night. Okay. <laughs> it's evident. It, it, it's. I, I think that's the type of joke that only an alpha can come up with. But you know, I love it. I love it. Nah, man. I I, I got love for Lyndon. I got love for um my cappers, man. They 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 cool, man. And on another subject, one day, another podcast, I'll tell you one day how. At college, I could have probably been a Kappa one, hey. you know, but hey. I chose I chose the right way. So, you know. um, but anyway, <laughs> yeah. So we won't get into that. Um, let's just get into why everybody are listening. Uh, it, uh, critical race theory. So I'm going to give a basic under uh, basic uh, definition, and I'm going to actually then um, uh, give the, the baton to uh, you, Terrence, and you can kind of um, rather take down what I've what I said or, um, you know, uh, add to it. All right. So uh, critical race theory is an academic concept that is, as I said, a little, a little over 40 years old. Um, the core idea is that racism is a social construct 
and that it's merely the product of an individual bias or prejudice, but also something embedded in the legal systems and policies. Uh, the basic tenets of critical race theory um, emerged uh, as a framework of legal analysis um, with legal scholars of Derrick Bell, um, Kimberley Crenshaw, and Richard Delgado, among others. It is a basis of understanding society through the prism and lens of law, economics, and class. Terrence, did I did I nail it or did I miss miss some steps? And you can fill in the gaps. <laughs> so I, I think um, you did a great job explaining that um, from the legal perspective. Mm-hmm. And what I think most people don't understand is that theories and knowledge does not. Um, emerge in a vacuum, and when ideas typically emerge, they emerge in multiple spaces, right? Right. And so you gave a wonderful perspective on critical race theory that emerged out of the legal camp. And I think it's important for us to understand and to know that different camps call things different things. And so Derek Bell and his work around interest conversion theory um, and the emergence of CRT from the legal studies um, provides a means by which we can analyze and understand how racial inequalities exist in our society and how they affect the ways in which we orchestrate, you know, the law and criminal justice. But I want to take us a step back to the late 1800s, right? Mm-hmm. Um, um, there was a a um, series of perspectives and ideologies around social theories that emerged as a reaction to the Industrial Revolution, Mm. where individuals across Western Europe and in America saw groups of people um, uh, being treated differently, experiencing life differently, um, and engaging their experiences differently. And so what they saw was that those who profited from the Industrial Revolution looked one way, and oftentimes those who were of the poor, oppressed, uh, looked another way. And so you saw this rise of social ideologies and social theories that began to critique uh, society and how structures of inequality presented themselves and ways in which we can work around to sort of eradicate them. And so that was the rise of critical theory. And these critical theories um, saw themselves um, in German philosophy. They saw themselves in French philosophy. Um, we're talking about things such as Karl Marx. Um, everyone thinks he just wrote about, um, you know, his, his treatise um, and economics, but he wrote other things around um, social inequalities and, and the ways in which, you know, capitalism and the Industrial Revolution created classes of people. Um, we have the folks in the critical philosophy camp. So we're looking at folks such as Pierre Bordeaux, um, Michel Foucault, um, Henri Giroux, uh, Simone de Beauvoir, um, and so forth, that look at these structures. And so we come to the United States and we see the impact of these structures with the institutionalized uh, and or structural the ways these inequities have manifested themselves and really influence and affect the ways in which people along the margin experience Thomas Jefferson coin, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so when you look at that, my good brothers, um, 
critical race theory emerges um, as a framework. It is a set of analytical tools and a model that's used to help us understand why racial inequities exist in our society and what we can do as advocates to eradicate them. And so this is not about uh, talking about white privilege. It's not about anti-racist education. Right. It's not about multicultural education. It's not even about diversity. It's really analyzing the structures to help us understand these inequities that exist and how they influence the lives of people and what we can do about them. And I think that roundabout way of me explaining this history um, of these theories is that people really have no clue right. about critical race theory, critical theory, or any other social critical theories um, that are used um, in an academic camp to help us make sense uh, of the phenomenon that we experience um, in our reality. Yeah. And so, you know, and th- thank you for that. That was a really, really um, well, you know, well-versed, deep understanding to the place. I, again, I, don't, I didn't even consider the, um, the concept of industrial revolution and how um, it, it had ties into how we looked at the critical theory of economics, but it makes sense, right? Because critical race theory, again, uh, you know, the, the topic that we're here, it, it evaluates the system. And I think that's really what people are confusing. They think it, they think it actually, uh, it's a, uh, it's attacking a particular race, but it's not, right. you know? And, and so um, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, go to you, Lyndon, but I'm going to uh, lace this with the, with the statement here. So we talk about where uh, critical race theory, one of the, the, I mentioned in my opening monologue, um, the civil rights movement and in attacking the ideal of the system and how it was un- unfair, right? And then there was success in that. And then so the Supreme Court, um, in the Warren Court in particular, uh, was very uh, um, strong in advocating uh, these, creating these uh, legal precedents that helped further the civil rights in this country, in particular to uh, black Americans. The uh, response to that became this anti-civil um, rights uh, uh, push by those who started saying that, listen, um, because of civil rights, you know, if you're going to be evaluating things on civil rights, then that's where we're going to, you're going to talk about, um, uh, the uh, 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 not what's the word I'm think, thinking about? Um, oh, I lost my thought. My the word the the when you're accepting people into college and reverse racism. No, um, affirmative action. Okay. Yeah. So they were attacking affirm, oh. af, um, affirmative action, right? And so uh, they started t- attacking affirmative action and programs that were designed to help um, escape the inherent uh, racist racist uh, um, systems that were keeping black people or people of color um, behind the eight ball economically right, in, in class, right? And then so you started seeing these, these movements uh, that were uh, being curated um, and they started attacking these anti, um, anti-democratic, anti-civil um, rights uh, perspectives. So Lyndon, in that, in that regard, like what are your thoughts on that? You know, so. Yeah, so, you know, I think that, you know, as we're understanding, you know, critical race theory, you know, maybe from a lay person's perspective, um, but just understanding the historical foundations of race in America, you know, we really 
we have to understand and, and really start with and, and, and really, uh, Terrence, let me know if I'm if I'm not correct here. You know, as we're talking about critical race there, we, we're talking about structures yeah. and we're not talking about individuals. Right. And so we're, we're talking about race on a macro level as opposed to a micro level. And so I think that there is often confusion because um, people feel like it's a personal indictment if we say, you know, these structures have benefited you know, a particular group. Right. Um, and it, these structures have benefited a specific group based on, you know, a racial um, hierarchy right. that has existed in this country for a number of years. And so uh, people will take that personally. Now, when you, you know, take that down to, you know, the post civil rights era, and we're starting to talk about affirmative action, um, I think we have to start thinking about some of those initiatives as efforts to remediate and erode those structures that have stratified the races, um, uh, you know, without merit. Right. Right. So understandably, if you've been the beneficiary of a benefit without um, any specific codification of that benefit, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, your family has been here for, let's say, 200 years, um, and they've benefited from 200 years of governmental support and opportunity. Um, and you compare that with, you know, uh, descendants of uh, slaves who had been here for three, 400 years, and they were the victims of that societal prejudice and you extrapolate that out 120 years, you know, post-slavery. Now, there's no way that, you know, those two groups um, could be on equal footing. And so um, we have to, I think, really be willing to engage the structures that uh, have existed when we're talking about issues such as affirmative action. And, and I think that, you know, we also have to be thoughtful about what the objectives are, um, you know, with achieving, uh, you know, really what the, the objectives are when we're talking about how we're going to remediate uh, the structural racism that has plagued this country. Yeah. And I was an excellent point. Um, my good brother, you know, part of the challenge is that, you know, Americans are vastly undereducated when it comes to racism. Yeah. People, people think it's about individual acts. You called me a name, the N-word. Right. Well, that's not racism. Racism is about structures and systems in place that produce and control mechanisms of power to perpetuate and preserve institutional privilege. And so because, we're, because some are unable to think on a macro system level, they make the assumption of making racism about individual behavior. And then we confuse those individual behaviors with being prejudiced or being bigot, bigoted. And we don't understand that there is, you know, institutionalized racism, structural racism, and then there's other things such as internalized racism. And so... You know, because our educational system does not um, does not value 
and champion and or endorse, um, you know, critical thinking, abstract thinking, thinking on the system level, we have individuals who sort to make this an indictment against them. And it's not a personal indictment against you. It's about the indictment of the structures, as our good brother just mentioned, and how those structures have prevented individuals from becoming full actors in a society. <clears throat> so, so, and so that's where I, I think, you know, part of the trouble is. So I, what I was thinking about when you were just talking, um, both both yourself, Terrence, and Lyndon, <laughs> when you are talking about systems, and it's, it's popped in mind, I was thinking about PPP loans. Mm-hmm. And, 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 or, or the concept of the, these loans that came up during the, the whole pandemic that we had, right. Mm -hmm. Whole panini. And, um, I was fascinated how people like, you know, especially black people were rushing to get these loans and then the government was coming and now like, you know, they're rushing to take, you know, put, they're locking people up and the joke around like uh, all y'all, they got the PPP loans, you know, you guys are, um, you know, you guys about to go to prison and whatnot. Right. And, Mm -hmm. um, I had this thought and this weird thought. I was like, you know, what people don't realize about these loans is that they were um, bonded to the point where they had low interest rates. And for a lot of people, it was it was the first time in their life that they can get a loan signed off rubber stamped at such a low interest rate that was going to increase their business or increase their personal lives. And what we talk when we talk about race and and society, we fail to understand the soft context of how economics plays into that. And when we talk, fail to talk about like accessibility, mm-hmm. because a lot of times, you know, black businesses, especially, and I am a black business owner, it is very hard to get that loan. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very hard to get that loan, and especially for a certain amount, no matter how well your business is doing. Mm-hmm. And so the opportunities, this, this, it's weird, the same opportunities that were afforded to other groups without even a thought were now opened up because of this whole pandemic. And now we're seeing the backlash behind that with the government saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. Some of y'all got a little bit too greedy, which is true. There's always going to be, the, you know, the equalizer of those who take advantage too much, just like there's going to be people who don't take enough mm-hmm. uh, what they need, Right. But I was just literally thought about that just now about how even now we're, we're talking about and how it interplays race and society and economics interplays in that. And that's how critical race theory would evaluate that. It would look at this, you know, how we're we're having a conversation even surrounding something as separate as um, the, these PPP loans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw, um, brilliant legal scholar. <clears throat> talks about the intersectionality of things and said, you know, individuals who are oftentimes affected by systems of racism um, bring multiple identities to a space. Mm-hmm. And race is just one. Gender is another. Economic status is another. Mm-hmm. Uh, ethnicity, religion, so on and so forth. So oftentimes when you look at persons who might have experienced racism, they've also experienced other social declivities around socioeconomics. Mm-hmm. And so we talk about structural racism and we talk about racism, but we don't get specific, right? So I take us to the 1920s with redlining. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? This is the federal yeah. 
governmental policy of redlining, yeah. where 98% of government-backed loans went to one group right. mm-hmm. and less than 2% to another. Yeah. And so when you think about generations of housing, you know, a third of your income is it goes to paying your mortgage and your home and so forth. In some cases, 40%. So imagine if you didn't have to spend 40% of your income mm. on somewhere to live, right? right? Imagine being uh, zoned to a location that was systematically undervalued, devalued, and in many cases um, not valued at all, created the conditions in which current um, communities are now suffering, right? I was reading a paper that said during uh, structural inequality and redlining, over $300 billion was siphoned out of the black community just in Chicago. $300 billion just in housing. So imagine if those communities in Chicago, black communities, had the $300 billion to reinvest in themselves, in right. their community, in their schools. Just think about how further ahead those communities would have been if there was no uh, racial prejudice within the ways in which we just gave up loans. Yeah. yeah. And I, so we don't look at the compounding effect of, of, of system policies and laws and how they perpetuate systemic racism, right? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. You know, one of the, um, one of the books that I've read over the last few years uh, talked about um, black banks and um, how the just talked about like the the racial wealth gap in America, and I think that we miss like even growing up, I'd heard the term redlining, but I didn't it didn't really like right. hit like that, right? Yeah. I didn't really know what it meant, right? Just just so that you know the listeners out there, I think have an appreciation. The federal government decided to create a middle class. Yeah. In America, you know, we're talking about like the 20s and the 30s. So coming off like the Great Depression, um, the federal government was like, okay, in order to help to continue to grow this country um, in this depressed economic state, we need to build the middle class. Right. Like that was like federal policy. All you know, we're talking about New Deal Democrats and whatnot. So. One of the things that they they said and they decided was home ownership was the way that you build the middle class. Right. Right. So the federal government created the mortgage that we're familiar with today, the 30 year mortgage. Right. um, Essentially making home ownership affordable. Right. 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 And they reserved that for a specific Specific racial group, specific racial group. Yeah. That's right. As we're thinking about like what these things are, yeah. As we're thinking about redlining, as we're thinking about structural racism, I think that's the way that we kind of have to frame some of these conversations. Yeah. Is you know, even if they didn't paint it with a specific um, policy that says, you know, we will not make loans to black people, um, you know, and there's been plenty of you know Supreme Court. Uh, decisions that have absolutely parsed the issue, but we have to understand that the structures were established to benefit a specific race and 
we are we are now living in the aftermath of those structures. So, you know, when we're talking about the racial wealth gap um, and we're talking about, you know, structural inequalities, you know, we're talking about living in in the aftermath of, you know, all of this structural inequality. And I, and I say the aftermath, um, it's not a an appropriate term because we're still in it. Right. And so we'll get into that when we go yeah. into the whole Sorry. concept. No, 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 it's fine. No, it's great. This is great. This is great. We'll get into like whole, like the, uh, the idea of the post-racial and the colorblindness and all that. Cause I mm-hmm. want to talk about that. Um, but, but to your point though, uh, Lyndon, I was thinking about, you know, pivoting back even to like Brown versus Board of Education and, you know, Thurgood Marshall made the argument. He said how society has perpetuated bigotry with systemic racism. This is his quote and an internal guards against fairness. So those who wish to preserve separate but equal claim that it was non-discriminatory, but just separate. But the Dahl test, as we as mentioned, showed that the practice, especially as it related to um, so fundamental socialization, contributed to perpetuation of racism, racism in social systems. That is, in, in, in fact, the ideal of redlining, the ideal of loans, the ideal of creating, you know, a class of people that's better than the than than. Um, another class that is that is the divide and so we you you have to look at it again through the macro sense and and evaluate it and say why is one thing unequal to another group? Mm-hmm. and it's not because of to your point uh terrence what you just said oh because someone made called me the n-word right someone said someone you know made made a monkey joke to me mm-hmm. right that's not that's not the that's not what racism is. Racism is a system. It's not a it's not an ideal of um personal availability. Right. You know, I don't care if you don't like me. Mm. <laughs> Just treat me fairly. Right. Mm-hmm. So brother, so when you so 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 check this out, right? From sixteen nineteen, right? Um when the first slave came, there's actually some documentation and research that Suggests that the first lady came in 1607. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll go with the popular number of 1619. So from 1619 to 1865, you had a, an economic system based on the subjugation of one group of folk who right. were forced to work these systems without wages. So that in itself created an economic advantage. Right? It right. fundamentally created separate classes. Compounding on top of that, you have Plessy versus Ferguson, which is established separate but equal. Right. In the middle of separate but equal, you have the federal government and the creation of red line. Right. Right. Moving on into the 1960s, 70s, 80s, you had a short window where we tried to make progress, but then the war on drugs, the war on poverty, um, the overrepresentation of special education, police brutality, so on, so on, so on, mass incarceration, it's not stuff. And so when you look at critical race theory, right, we're not really saying race is the issue, right? Right. We're looking at the practice of examining yeah. systemic racism yeah. based on what the empirical and interpretive evidence tells us. Individuals think that we're just dreaming this stuff up. Oh, we're just pulling this out of the air. No, this is what the aggregate empirical data tells us. This is what the interpretive perspective of the phenomenon is telling us. 
And so we use the critical race theory because it helps us look critically at systems to better understand these racialized inequalities. And I think people, and I know based on our research, that sometimes people are unwilling to have an open mind to examine their own biases, we'll, their own assumptions. And we'll get into, and we'll get into why that is, by the way. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so, you know, critical race theory provides us the tools to analyze and to look at systemic racism, even if we just look at it from the economic standpoint, as you brothers have just wonderfully laid out. You know, from the 1920s to the 1950s, that's 30 years, 30 years of giving preferential treatment to one group in terms of housing. And we wonder why housing, um, uh, you know, access to housing is such uh, uh, a challenge. You have to go back to the root of the issue. And because our educational system um, does not provide a robust um, set of tools in our public sector and our public education uh, space, individuals sometimes cannot make those connections. You know, and I, I'm, I'm um, glad you actually mentioned systemic racism. Um, for the one purpose of, uh, I'm going to play a clip, but before we play the clip, I, Lyndon, were you, did you want to add on something? or? Yeah, the, the only thing that I wanted to add was, you know, I think that it's also fair to evaluate critical race theory and um, to think about race in America, not only as assigning, you know, economic value and benefits to specific groups, but also social um, value and benefits to, spe- to specific groups. So, you know, even when, you know, maybe it's a gross oversimplification, but, you know, there was a time when, you know, socially it was more acceptable to be a a poor white person than a wealthy black man. Right. You were assigned more social benefits right. in this country. And so, um, you know, the, the economic benefits um, that, you know, were assigned as a result of, you know, thinking about racism, you know, is one way to, to kind of frame it. But it's also important to understand that, you know, even at a time, you know, w- you know, we're a hundred years after the, the Tulsa, um, you know, riot where they burned down the Greenwood neighborhood of Tulsa. Um, There were, you know, middle-class and well-to-do black folks in that community that were, um, I won't even say victimized, but terrorized because of their race. And that was perpetrated against them, not simply because, you know, they had like their economic status did not, um, overshadow the fact that they were black and so the social benefits that are assigned are something that i think that are important that that is also important and i again you i think you can think about that on a macro level as well um you know just calling somebody the n-word is is obviously socially unacceptable um but that's you know we're that's looking at you know an issue on the on the individual level but we're really talking about all of the social benefits that are assigned to people simply because of the color of their skin or their perceived uh race right. so so um right. that takes us to you know the influence and impact of institutionalized racism so over hundreds of years you've built up these psychological and sociological structures frames and schemas by which we have um, assigned value to people. 
And so, you know, that, that plays a role in, in this systemic racism because, you know, assigning value um, to a certain group of people makes it easier to erase them. It makes it easier to say, oh, yeah, they're the big bad. Let us protect this other group and give them the advantage because they don't deserve X, Y, and Z. Um, and you make a good point. Um, it, it is economic. It's also sociological and it's also psychological. You know, a Harvard um, research study came out that suggested that um, a white man with a high school diploma has more earning potential than a black man with an Ivy League master's degree. That's empirical science. Yeah. And so while we can look at some of these areas, right, um, and, and have our own sort of anecdotal uh, sort of um, evidence, the empirical data gives us a picture of how various groups uh, experience life within these structures and systems. And so it all plays a part in the system, the psychology, the sociology, the economics, the education. Um, and CRT helps us get to the root of those issues and sort of uproot those and, and eradicate them. But how do you eradicate something, an ideal, an idea, a thought, a practice, a way of being that's been in effect for four, five, six hundred, eight hundred, nine hundred, a thousand years. Well, the only way you can eradicate it is by challenging it, right? And then and then asking the hard questions. But what we're go what what has ended up happening um, is now we're having people taking the narrative of race mm-hmm. and they're trying to curate the conversation. Um, yep. So uh, you know, and, and I'm going to move this discussion into another space and talk about the political. The, the political aspect of it, right? So, um, because it talks about uh, systemic racism, but in a way that they are now saying that they're challenging the idea that systemic racism is even a thing. So I'm going to play two clips um, back to back, and you're going to pick up on who these clips are surrounding uh, once you uh, hear it. So bear with me we've been talking about is curriculum and what is changing in public schools almost at a neck uh, at a jarring rate except for certain school boards and school systems and states one governor taking a stand when it comes to critical race theory and American history Governor Ron DeSantis Florida civics curriculum will incorporate foundational concepts with the best materials and it will expressly exclude unsanctioned narratives like critical race theory and other unsubstantiated theories. Let me be clear, there's no room uh, in our classrooms for things like critical race theory. Teaching kids to hate their country and to hate each other is not worth one red cent of taxpayer money. 
Right. And critical race theory is that a society institutions are all racist. And he was announcing yesterday a hundred and six million dollar proposal to support civics in Florida schools. Uh, what they would do is they would uh, direct the Department of Education uh, to essentially have a class to teach teachers uh, about civics. And the teachers who complete the training will get a three thousand dollar bonus. But as we just heard, it will not include critical race theory. It's pretty good. And I think that one thing that he wanted to do that the president picked up on, too, and spoken about President Trump when he was in the White House is the need for civics in schools. Uh, the basic the, that just left almost everybody's curriculum. And he, Governor DeSantis says, I have no idea why I'm putting it back. Did you take civics in school? Did y'all have sure, it when y'all were growing up? I don't, I don't think I don't, I don't think, think we, we had. did. Yeah, I don't think we did. I can't remember taking that class. History, yeah. yes, but not civics. Right. Mr. Willie. Uh, was his name Gary <laughs> Willie taught uh, in my high school Aww. civics? You I think still I had remember? Th three of the four. Yeah, years. I took Absolutely. speed reading. I I had an opportunity <laughs> oh, to take I it as too. my elective. Evelyn Wood Did you take typing? You could Type um, this proposition that we are a systemically racist country. Your reaction? Well, it's a bunch of horse manure. I mean, give me a break. This country uh, has had more opportunity for more people than any country in the history of the world. And it doesn't matter where you trace your ancestry from. We've had people that have been able to succeed and all. And here's the problem with things like critical race theory that they're peddling. They're basically saying all our institutions are, are bankrupt and they're, they're illegitimate. Okay, so how do you have a society if everything in your society is illegitimate? So it's a very harmful ideology, and I would say uh, really a, a race-based version uh, of, of a Marxist-type ideology. So we've banned it in our schools here in Florida. We're not gonna put any taxpayer dollars to critical race theory, and we wanna treat people as individuals, not as members of groups. So, so 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 here's a, here's yeah. something before I, I i let you guys chime in i wanted to um lay off a um an idea of what's happening right now okay in march 18th of 2000 and uh no let's go back january remember i said five days after the insurrection um, January it, uh, uh, in, in January 2021, uh, the Heritage Foundation held a panel discussion surrounding the new intolerance and the grip of America surrounding um, critical race theory. Right. So the Heritage Foundation, for those who don't know, is a uh, one of the top campaigners for against critical race theory. But along the, the, with the Manhattan Institute, another conservative think tank known for pro promoting the ideal of broken windows theory policy of uh, broken windows theory of policing. Right. And so um, they are, uh, along with uh, others, they provide such initiatives that uh, educational liberty alliance, critical race training and education, no left turn in education. Um, these uh, uh, groups, these think tanks started to uh, have a discussion surrounding critical race theory in early of 2021. The clips you heard were in March of 18th of 2021. So then they what start, they started doing as most um, move uh, silent movements happened, they started uh, giving this idea to right wing publications, right, and the right wing publications like the Daily Caller and the Federalist, the Federalist and other play, other right wing media and New York Post started talking a little bit more about critical race theory. Now it wasn't it really wasn't a big thing, right? 
And then on April 30th, uh, the day after or the day of um, President Biden doing his inauguration, Mitch McConnell that has a press conference and he says that I am putting an initiative that's saying uh, that we're going to speak against um, any federal funding for any school that incorporate um, the 1619 project and critical race theory. So now they started tying two concepts in that were totally independent of one another. Right. And so again, this is a byproduct of the think tank and the little lobbyist group. They started giving, you started seeing conservatives around the country echoing the same statements about, you know, uh, socialism, uh, Marxism, and the idea of um, the, the uh, inequality. These are part of the culture wars that have been pilfering society, right? That was on April 30th. On May 1st, DeSantis does his interview on Fox News where he you hear that quote where he's saying that, you know, we're not going to uh, um, have the Marxist ideals in our, in our schools or whatnot. So you, now you're seeing a concerted effort that's created and it what you're seeing is that uh with most uh right-wingers what they're do, they've done is they've created a narrative and one of the people i, I want to bring up is christopher rufo who is um, who bridges the two groups i talk about the heritage foundation and mount the manhattan um institute um he became the leading spokesperson against critical race theory speaking about it as early as december of 2020 and then obviously um since then um, as a visiting fellow of the Heritage, he produced a report arguing that critical race theory makes inequality worse. And obviously, in April, um, the in April of 2021, the Manhattan appointed him as the director and a new initiative of spokesperson for the initiative of critical race theory. Um, now, Rufo is, is also an affiliated of right wing think tank for the Discovery Institute, best known for repeated attempts to smuggle Christian uh, theology into U.S. public schools under the guise of pseudo science and intelligent design. Um, in his statement, he says the idea is to take the, the concept of critical race theory, a nondescript uh, niche idea of African-American studies and create the conversation of race and redefine it and codify it into a cultural statement that Americans can identify with. So he's clearly telling you that this is a propagandized effort in order to get people on board with opposing it. So this is, I lay all that foundation because I want to lay out the nefarious ideas of what is happening. Oh, and by the way, since June 11th, Fox News has mentioned critical race theory, excuse me, up until June 11th, Fox News has mentioned critical race theory by name 250 times on their broadcast. Consider you can uh, take in the fact that you have right wing publications taking on this. You have um, uh, politicians taking on this uh, this this narrative. Now you have Fox News. The consist consistent bombardment of characterizing a particular theory has now created this this uh, environment where people are like, "Hey, I don't want critical race theory in my schools." Because now we're getting a constant bombardment of negative ideals that they've codified this idea of what critical race theory is. So I, I'm sorry, I, I, I know I spoke a lot, but I wanted you guys and I wanted the public to listen to the timeline of what is happening. And if for those who think, I didn't even know critical race theory was a thing until two weeks ago. Yeah, you wouldn't have. Because it wasn't and a thing. It, so let me just jump in real, real quick. So, I mean... 
I didn't do a whole lot of research for before jumping on this podcast about what critical race theory is, but it at least, you know, my my unschooled understanding is that, you know, it is a meaningful engagement on the impact that systems have on um, racial inequalities. Right. Right. That's not history. <laughs> and like when I think that you can tell the truth about history and not I, I think you can tell history in an accurate way without that being critical race theory. Right. But I think that so many politicians and, you know, and, and let's be honest, like the Republican Party, you know, as an institution has been masterful at doing this, like changing the narrative, like for I don't know what the past 50, 60 years, but um, simply telling the truth about history doesn't mean that, you know, you're engaging critical race theory. Um, it That may be laying the foundation for it, but I mean, simply telling the truth about what happened in this country to Native Americans, to um, Asians, obviously to the Af- you know the African diaspora uh, that's not critical race theory that's just history and it I mean frankly it's disgusting that um, but to your point I mean you touched on this earlier um, there are individuals and politicians who trade on mischaracterizing history for their own um, benefit and so you know they're they're basically you know painting the brush that anything that um, criticizes the United States or America in a way that um, is contrary to their you know idyllic formation of what this country ought to be is critical race theory, and I, I think that's just that's total BS. It's, it's BS, but it's, it's nefarious and, and and devilish. Go ahead, parents. I, I would say not challenging the country; it's challenging what it means to be white supremacy. Yeah, mm-hmm. in that critical race theory provides both a lens to challenge that. Well, maybe the knight in shining armor myth is not true. Um, one one thing that I want the public to understand is that. Critical race theory has never been taught in American public schools. It's not in any state um, uh, educational state standard. Can you say that no for the people in the back? Just, I mean, I, it's, it's, I just it's added. Never been, it's never been taught. It's not in any state standard. It's not tested. It does not exist. So in order for a problem to exist, you have to create hysteria around a problem. Right. And so this, this whole notion that we're going to ban critical race theory from public schools, you're banning something that never existed to begin with. But I, I, and this is but Terrence, I want, and, and this I want to talk about that. I want to talk about that, but because I, I, I have have a section on that. So keep your keep your powder dry. Keep your gunpowder dry on that, please, <laughs> because I want to talk. I'm going to talk about, but I want to focus in on the political campaign that has been created. Because I do want to talk about schools, school and this theory. Like that's important, and we'll transition to that in in a moment. But let's just, you know, there's a lot to to pull from the idea of right wing publications creating, to your point, a hysteria where there was none, because they understand that having um, an initiative that people can grasp grasp around 
it promotes their ideology. It promotes their pol- it's good politics for them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's great. It's good politics and it's smart politics. Just like in 2020 and 2019, you heard all the actually no, I'm sorry, 2018. You heard all the thing about caravans, the car- mm-hmm. immigrant caravans. And as soon as the elections were over, they didn't even bring up caravans anymore. Yeah, that wasn't the thing. But for three months leading up to the election, it was immigration and caravans and changing of the America and how the people are pouring in from the borders. Invasions. Invasions. Yeah. Right. Fox News. Where are they? Where's Where the invasion? Right. But that's common sense. Yeah. Right. And that's and that's where and that's what I wanted to point out. Like there are concerted efforts to make everybody create this fervor, you know, to have a com- about topics that have nothing to do with anything. And I wanted to focus on DeSantis because DeSantis is, is who really is. Um, he is an opportun- a political opportunist, but he understands the performative aspect of politics. And that's what makes him even more dangerous. Right. Absolutely. Because the same DeSantis who created an anti-riot bill, but when you challenged on him, say, hey, were there any instances of, of, of uh, this uh, particular issues in Florida? He said, no, 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 there was nothing in Florida, but I'm trying to prevent it. When he started, when he pushed this tra- uh, transgender bill, he said, what, are there any instances of uh, transgender kids in sports in Florida? No, 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 but I'm trying to prevent it. Right? And now... Critical race theory. Another, thing, he had a big press conference again. All these three, three things he's had big co- press conferences. Not with local media, by the way. Every press conference has been in front of Fox News. He's because he's he's kicked out local media because he's he's playing for the cameras, as we, they as they say in, in sports. This guy's not competing. He's playing for the cameras, right? So, um, same thing with critical race theory. It's not a thing, but he creates this initiative, this whole fervor. And then he's, he, and he puffs up in front of the camera and say, I'm, I'm stopping. We're not going to allow it in Florida and we're not going to do tax dollars. And he's talking, you know, he's running around like he's pocket 96, you know, like he's just, he is just acting like he, he's big, bad and bold and doing what he's got to do. But it's all with the idea of performative, um, performative politics for him and for him to create and to boost his profile, because obviously we understand He's he's running for re-election in 2022, and everybody knows the tea leaves. Or he's he's got his eye on a bigger seat in the presidency. So you know he's actually taken on this moment of trying to be the face of leadership in this cultural war because cultural wars work in politics for for um, especially for right wings. When you have a cultural war, people they they can't articulate why they hate it, but they can't stand it. You know whether it's it's regarding abortion, whether it's regarding gay marriage. Whether it's regarding just women's rights, whether it's regarding uh, um, the, the uh, uh, police brutality, you know, whether it's regarding uh, black economic, ec- economic, uh, um, systemic, uh, um, cl- well, first of all, class. Let's talk about the economics and class, and what is regarding systemic racism. C- cultural wars are big business for politics, and DeSantis decided to make himself the face of this cultural war, and you saw it in Fox News. They said. Oh, he's he's taking on the he he's the leader of this movement, Governor DeSantis. Everything is curated for a purpose, because that date where they did that interview was May first. Whole production was in Orlando, Florida. The day before was the was the presidential Biden's um, a pre, a President Biden's inaugural. I mean, his first uh, a, a joint a, a press conference, joint address to Congress. So they've they're creating this 
thing where it's all I just want you guys to see. You see how like there's a plan here? April thirtieth, remember Mitch McConnell decided to do a press conference. Mm-hmm. Then it's like it's a it's like they're, they're the hand, right hand knows what the left hand is doing. Yeah. So they're trying to create this thing and the DeSantis, he's he's their golden boy. Mm-hmm. And it's this it's a uh uh it's nefarious, it's very it's quiet, but it's out loud at the same time. They're, I mean, they're being, but, they're, they're very deliberate about it. I mean, and, and if we're being honest, you know, this is, this is nothing new. So, you know, Richard Nixon, you know, this, this is straight out of Richard Nixon's playbook. So, um, yeah, the, the right in America understands that, you know, they have a shrinking um, base. And so what they, the opportunity that they have is, you know, creating, you know, single issue voters and, you know, trafficking in outrage. Um, they like they they understand that fully. So it, it's not even like right now that is what is to be expected. Right. right. So, yeah, that, you know, we're talking about like critical race theory and it's it, this is an academic topic. Right. <laughs> you know, like this is this is a serious topic. I mean, we we have, you know, serious people talking and engaging on these, these topics, but you know, uh, the, the fact that, you know, you have all of these politicians that, who are coming out against critical race theory. I mean, it, it's, you know, it, it's, uh, frankly, it's just silly. Um, and like you said, it's nefarious. There are a lot of people, unfortunately, that are going to fall for it. Um, they've been falling for it for, for years, but yeah, I, the, the, the the challenge here, gentlemen, is that we have a vastly uneducated, undereducated society. Yeah, and because people are undereducated and uneducated, they do not possess the thinking skills and the capacities to challenge these thoughts. Right. Someone should have said, "Oh, we don't teach this anyway. Why are we doing all of this?" Right. You know. There's nothing wrong with providing people with tools to understand their existence within structure. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with uh, providing individuals uh, with the opportunity to challenge their own biases and assumptions. What the challenge here is, is that folks want to remain in power and they want to remain uh, in political office. So they're playing to the base of people. Yeah who have historically disenfranchised folks who look like you and I. Right. And so critical race theory disrupts, uh, disrupts that. And it provides people an opportunity uh, to become 100% within that society. And Floridians um, should be ashamed of themselves for even allowing this type of person to be the leader of their state government. What has this person done empirically that has shown you that he is the leader uh, for this state? He had an abysmal um, COVID response. Thousands upon thousands died. Thousands didn't have access to medicines and and vaccines. You look at the abysmal quality of public education. They're saying that civics was never taught. Government, economics, psychology, those have been stapled across the standardized curriculums across the country. And so for people to make these glaring claims and no one checks them shows you uh, the influence of the current education system on 
populations in those states in which people really should be looking at replacing school boards and their state legislators who who are uh, who have impacted influence on bills related to education. Yeah, I agree. And and the one thing that I'll add there is I do think that it I, I really feel like there is I, I I have a personal distrust for um, a a lot of politicians, um, particularly in the wake of, you know, January 6th. Um, I, I would say that distrust preceded that, but it was maybe crystallized as a result of what happened on January 6th, 2021. But, you know, I think that is ultimately going to be incumbent upon, you know, individual citizens to really make sure that we educate ourselves and vote our interests. And then we also, we hold, you know, uh, our, you know, private businesses accountable. So, you know, if, you know, for instance, uh, Disney is, you know, continues to support uh, politicians who are peddling in, in just outright lies and um, are supporting politicians who uh, continue to spew, you know, hateful um, lies and, and, and rhetoric, particularly with regard to race. You know, we have to make we as the public, we have to make sure that we hold those um, those companies accountable. Um, you know, and I'm not somebody who's saying go out and boycott, you know, this or that. And, you know, frankly, there's a, a lot of companies, um, including my own uh, Darden restaurants that that have done a lot for the community. But, you know, I think that we uh, as an electorate in the United States have to be more vigilant about holding our, our elected officials accountable. Uh, and if they're not representing our interests, then we have to make sure that we get them out of there. And, um, especially if they're telling lies and that's clearly what's been happening. Um, you know, I, I try to be a fair minded person, um, and, and evaluate, you know, all sources. Uh, I don't, I don't just take something as being true because it was on CNN or MSNBC, but, you know, if, if we're just being honest, Fox News, you know, they traffic and lies, they traffic almost lies. almost exclusively. I mean, with very, very, very limited exceptions, like they're just they're simply lying about what critical race theory is and and what, um, you know, someone challenging um, the United States. I mean, we've had what, 26 or 27 amendments to the, to the constitution. I mean, 27, 27, right. Like we've continued to improve, right. you know, the laws in this country. Um, but in doing but, that, but why, but why have we done that? It has not always been at the benefit because we want everyone to succeed. It's been at the expense of what can we get out of it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, Derek Bell talks about interest in purchase theory and that every benefit that black Americans have achieved and experienced as a result of civil rights legislation was because it was a direct benefit to those in power. So why are we, why are we amending the constitution? Why are we doing what we're doing? We have to go back to motive and examine the motives and the practice as to why things are happening. And when you look at this, it's always a tangential benefit to the folks who are in power, not because it's the right thing to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and to the point where, um, again, going into critical race theory, 
and the idea of why it's important to evaluate and just history. You know, I, I just want to say history in general. Um, people, you know, often think like, I don't need to learn history because it's not important and it's not relevant in my life. But and I'm, I'm, I'm going to take shots at the Democratic Party here in, in a moment because we're dealing with history right now and how they are operating with the filibuster. And you have a senator in Virginia and you have a senator in Arizona. West Virginia. West Virginia, rather, excuse me, um, in, in Arizona that are actively and even in California, Diane Feinstein. She says, I don't see the point of dismantling the, the filibuster. Right. But if people don't understand the idea and the, the, the thought process behind the filibuster was created to subjugate um, policy, especially in, in especially in regards to black people. You but we mentioned the amend the twenty seven uh, t- uh, amending the constitution uh, twenty seven times. It was done because the constitution was inherently a flawed document, and in order to pass legislation, I'm sorry, and look at the and look at those who created that document. Right. I, I just want people to just look at the makeup of the folks that made that document. They were all wealthy, wealthy white men. Right. And when you have a specific lens, and it's the only lens applied to policy, the policy is made in the favor of those who are writing and creating it. Inherently flawed. I don't know why people think this is rocket science. Well, it's, you know, it, 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 what it does is why it, it's they know this, but we, it goes against the myth making of the United States of, of America. And so, you know, I, you know, again, pivoting to like, again, this to, um, Again, the, the idea of the filibuster, and to your point, Terrence, people only argue and scratch and claw and fight against something that is going to harm, they feel like it's going to harm them and, and replace them. And I'm going to play a clip here um, from our good brother uh, that you're going to appreciate, um, Dr. Martin Luther King. The president's program were incorporated or such portions of it that would lend themselves to this. How would you feel about submitting this to a vote of the people of the United States who have never really had an opportunity to express themselves in this area? Well, this would certainly be all right with me because I think the vast majority of people in the United States would vote favorably for such a bill. I think the tragedy is that uh, we have a Congress uh, with a Senate that has a minority of misguided senators who will use the filibuster to keep the majority of people from even voting. They won't let the majority senators vote. And certainly they wouldn't want the majority of people to vote because they know they do not represent the majority of the American people. In fact, they represent in their own states a very small minority. I wanted to play that mic drop because that was in 1963. Still true. Still true. Still true. And the fact of the matter is that we have Martin Luther King said it's 1963 and it's 2021. And we literally have a minority of senators who are their idea of protectionism of the American ideal is more important than pushing policies that are going to help people. Right. Help, Help not just people. Let's just be clear. Help Americans. Help Americans. You know, black people people of color that are born in America are Americans. Right. You know, and you know, this, if you want to be technical about it, 
they are United States American. They're right. North American, Central right. and South American as well. Right. 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 Yeah. I, I was using that term, you know, kind of as a, as a proxy, but absolutely right. You know, the the whole idea of American exceptionalism, I think that's really what, um, you know, folks on the right that's the beef that they have with yes. critical race theory, right? Because, I mean, that's what DeSantis was saying in that clip that, you know, we're, we don't want to teach people to hate America, you know? And so, you know, what is America? Is America American exceptionalism? Well, if America is, exception, you know, American exceptionalism and there's this manifest destiny and, and you're tying the identity of America to this, you know, religious um, ideology of being um, perfect and being blessed by God, et cetera, then yes, <laughs> you know, critical race theory um, would challenge that because it it says that America is not perfect, right. right? But I think if you're a fair-minded human being, then you should understand that America is not perfect. And the only way that this democracy works is if we make it work, right? right? Um, James That's true. Ba- James- That's true. Yeah, James Baldwin, um, who's one of my favorite authors, you know, he has this quote where he says, I love America more than any other country in this world. And exactly for that reason, I insist on the right to criticize her perpetually. So my criticism of America doesn't mean that I hate America. To the contrary, I love it. I love my son. Right. And when he does something um, that's contrary to um, his best interests. I make sure that, you know, I correct him. Right. And and I do that out of love. And so the whole, you know, that's one of the things that, you know, really just kind of grinds my gears is that when you have politicians say that, you know, criticizing or telling the truth about American history is teaching people to hate America. Absolutely not. That That is, I mean, that that's uh, that's the worst kind of lie. Because it's teaching people how to be uncritical. Um, and that lack of critical thought, I think, is really a, you know, that's going to be a, a, an existential threat to our democracy, yep. you know, in general. Yep. So yeah, we should. And, and, I'm sorry. No, I, no, no. I, I, the only thing I was going to add is just that, you know, that, in my opinion, is the reason why teaching um, American history accurately yeah. and really engaging, you know, at the at the appropriate level, you know, concepts like critical race theory um, is absolutely critical to preserving, you know, our democracy and preserving this country, not, you know, somehow, you know, deterior deteriorating it. I mean, it, it's just it's crazy. Um, go ahead, Terrence, because I want to I want to transition into schooling, but I want you to, if you want, to respond to that. Well, no, I, I agree with all of that and, and the simple fact that we just have to be willing to challenge. I think, you know, we have gotten to a point in our society where people have acquiesced, right? They've just acquiesced to um, current conditions. They, they're, they're dismayed. They're, you know, and... and we have to continue to birth in people the fire to keep fighting and to keep pushing and not to let the small minority control the vast majority, the lives and the experiences. Because if that happens, if they get a foothold, they will rewrite and wipe out every benefit 
that we have gained. And there was an attempt to do that over the past four years. And so I just want people to be cognizant that we cannot sit back. We cannot acquiesce. We have to keep pushing forward. So one of the things I would say is that, um, to your point, though, Lyndon, about relationships, I look at black America. We have a marriage with um, America. Mm -hmm. We We have a marriage. Black Americans have we have a marriage with the history of this country, mm-hmm. and sometimes that marriage is very strained, you know. And <laughs> putting sometimes, it gently, yeah. right? And, and and so, but even in that marriage, you love that you love that person, you love the spouse, yeah. You know, even though sometimes they may be a bit abusive to you, which is actually something little that could be something where we <laughs> get into a whole nother scenario, yeah, right? Yeah. Right? But you know, we still stay we stay committed in this relationship, mm-hmm. right? Because sometimes they show us that they do love us back mm-hmm. and then they show us that they don't mm-hmm. right but we still have maintained the right to be critical of them absolutely and that criticism of them does not negate our commitment to them that's right and that's what sometimes we we often forget yeah i mean we african americans uh black people we fought for this country um before we had rights in this country right i mean if that's not if that's not patriotism, right. then I don't know what is. That's not I mean, love. I mean, well, you know, the Bible says, you know, uh, what greater love is there that a man would lay down his life for a friend? You know, we had, um, uh, what, what was the brother that, uh, was it Christmas addicts that? Yes. That, yeah. He's the first, per- first, first, first person to die in the on behalf of this country. Yeah. You know, and you dare challenge, um, you know, our our right to wait, wait, to wait, wait. Let's, let's, yeah. let's take a step back. Mm-hmm. We worked for free for over 250 years. Yeah. With, without rising up and murdering our oppressors. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I think we have been very forgiving and very patient uh, and very loving toward America when America has not done the same for us. My grandfather fought in World War II against the Japanese in the Pacific. And when he came back, he said he didn't understand why he was fighting the Japanese because they had never done anything to him. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, we have, um, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I'm, 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 I'm just saying that black Americans have given more to America. Uh, than we've received. And we can talk about the entitlement program, Social Security, various programs, it still does not equate to the value that we've given this country. Yeah. It, it, it still doesn't. It still doesn't um, equate in value. And we talk about reparations. We're not even talking about the slavery. Let's just start with structural inequality from 1870 to 1970. Just address that, right? The value, you can't compute the value. We've given so much. And how much more can we give? So I, w- I want to talk about his um, school and, um, you know, the, the school and race in general. And with that, I'm going to uh, play a clip here uh, from uh, it's a, a doctor. Uh, let me get, make sure I get her name correct. Dr. Imani Perry. Uh, professor African-American Studies in, at Princeton. Um, and she, you know, gave a, she was uh, 
gave a great quote that I think you guys would appreciate here. Important uh, thing that you talked about and you, you laid that out brilliantly. It doesn't really need any, any, any addendum by me. But you talked about this other issue of colorblindness, which is an important thing, right? right? Because critical race theory has always rejected liberal colorblind theory. That, ironically, because it, it's always accused of being this wild liberal theory, but in many ways, critical race theory said, hey, wait a minute, colorblindness as the goal, as a social aspiration, is also problematic. We need to actually think about race. Doesn't mean that we obsess about race, doesn't mean that right. we prioritize one race over the other per se, but we need to think about race as, as, as another factor here. Right. If you want to address inequality, you have to have data. In order to have data, you have to pay attention to where people from different segments of society are situated. You have to be able to look at the relationships between race and health outcomes, race and class, race and educational outcomes, right? Um, and so if you are colorblind, and there we have examples in other nations, um, Germany might be an example, where if you don't actually keep track of race, you have no mechanisms for addressing racial injustice. That is absolutely untenable in this country that has been organized from the outset around racial inequality. Um, so it's a really, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's a problematic form of legal interpretation. But if we go a step further, if we can't even talk about it in schools, right, it actually has the potential to diminish our, our young people's ability to be sort of active civic participants, to understand the world they occupy and hopefully build a better society. Speaking of schools, you know, the, this whole hullabaloo began because Republican legislators said we will not allow critical race theory to be taught in schools. Now, I used to teach high school. I've studied schools. I know people in school. You know, I, I, I want to know where these schools are, where people are teaching all this critical race theory. This feels like a solution in search of a problem. Right. Yeah. I mean, so this look, this is a kind of conventional right wing approach where they um, create a moral panic around an issue that actually doesn't really exist, right? And we can see a comparable move right now in targeting trans teens, right? They take, um, uh, they sort of make up a problem and then drum up a lot of anxiety and a moral panic around it as a way to detract attention from their own failed policies and agendas. And unfortunately, because we have a society that is in which it's easy to ignite a variety of bigotries, they get a lot of traction out of it. Um, uh, but yes, there, I, you know, I, I, I have taught critical race theory when I was in, when I taught law school, I, I taught it many times. I am not aware of it being taught um, in high schools at all, in K-12 education, and only very rarely in college. I mean, it is, it's not a kind of mainstream, it's not like teaching African-American studies. It's not teaching the, like teaching the civil rights movement. It's a very kind of um, niche field that is largely in, in law schools and, and in schools of education at this point, graduate schools of education. So, right, so, so this is a, a, a sort of interesting moment here then. So when they attack uh, critical race theory, there, it, it seems like a cynical move then. They, they, they don't yes. know what it means, clearly, but they also don't need to know what it means because it seems to be a code for something else. It's a code for something. And they're also banking on the fact that the general public doesn't know what it means. And, and, and that's okay because mm. it's not really a mainstream theory, right? Um, and so, you know, they're drumming up anxiety 
and it becomes very difficult for those who disagree with them to even engage because who knows what critical race theory means besides you know academics frankly and and some lawyers right um so i do think right. it's cynical but on the but, but on the other hand i do think there's one piece that is very important to be mindful of it is really clear that they are outraged at the idea that we would teach the history of the nation in an authentic way with all of the details mm. of the injustice of the violence of the inequality of you know all of the isms that is seen as a problem to them um, they want to maintain the fiction of this country the mythology of this country and that's something that we do have to be very deliberate about responding to um, because we want our kids to be raised with 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 deep and meaningful knowledge so so ultimately when they say they don't want critical race theory in school they really don't want race talk in school they don't want a racial history in school they don't want any kind of critical analysis of white supremacy in school. right and I would even, I say, yes, all of that, but also they don't want a basically honest history of this nation, right? I mean, you don't have to mm. have a critical analysis to know that slavery was wrong or that Jim Crow was unjust, right? That's not a deep analysis. That's a, I mean, a five-year-old can understand <laughs> that those things are unjust. Um, so it's very alarming. I think we ought, we have to respond to it, but we cannot uh, be held to their terms because their terms are deceptive. Terrence, you still here? I am still here, All but right. I am, yes, sir. So um, I'm going to let you lead off on that clip. I know it was a long clip, but they talked about colorblindness and they talked about schooling. And what did, what are your thoughts on that and just that entire discussion that was from um, Mark Lamont? It was spot on. I think you have to start looking at the ways in which um, we allow these narratives to be controlled. Um, there's no public schools that's teaching critical race theory, um, as I alluded to before. And the ways in which we go about telling the truth is important. And if we don't teach oh, these so that, that's we a don't feedback. We got some feedback on you. It's a little loud in the background. Hold on. I'm going to let Terrence get himself together. <laughs> and I'm going to uh, go ahead and pivot to you, Lending. Go ahead. Cool. Uh, yeah, I, I think the idea of a colorblind society, I mean, it just doesn't jive with, with reality. I mean, the truth of the matter is, is that, you know, we can find beauty in in all the races, right? And it's fair. I would I would hate for somebody to... Um, fail to see, you know, my blackness because they fail to see a large part of who I am. Right. Um, and so just like, you know, in Germany, it's, it's looked at as being shame, like the, the era where that country was run by the, the Nazis is looked at as being shameful. Right. right? Mm -hmm. And rightfully so it was terrible what they did to, uh, Jewish people, um, and, and essentially everybody that didn't fit within their, um, you know, idealized racial structure, right? And they're taught that that was terrible and it should never be repeated. And the perpetrators of, you know, th those atrocities, you know, they're the living descendants of the people that, that perpetrated that. So, you know, it, 
I don't know why, um, you know, it, to me, it's perplexing why the United States can't grapple with that, um, the, the own, their own shame and guilt. Uh, but it, it, you know, we just we have to be willing to deconstruct the myth of, um, you know, this American exceptionalism. And, you know, one uh, the other thing that I'll add is, um, you know, Dr. Hill, who's, who's a good noob, by the way, you know, he he is. 100% correct in that, you know, we have to be willing to engage in this country's history. Um, but that's not critical race theory. It's not actually being taught in schools. And so just trafficking in the false narrative is, um, you know, it's is dubious. It's shameful. So one of the things I, I want to talk about with this school with school in general is the challenging of history, right? Mm -hmm. And why history is important in framing how we see the world. Mm -hmm. But before we get into that, we have to first evaluate what is um, the the problem when you have politicians trying to um, curate the discussion surrounding history and race. Uh, The issue is that you have this idea that... um, Race should not be brought up in the spectrum of um, school curriculum. And that makes it difficult to evaluate other aspects, not just surrounding black people, but just anything. Like what we're talking about, uh, the Trail of Tears, Mm -hmm. surrounding Native Americans, right? Um, You're talking about Japanese internment camps. Mm -hmm. And if you think I'm being an alarmist in that regard, I just want to let you understand that in 2007, the U.S. Supreme Court... um, in the court in the school assignment case on whether race could be a factor in maintaining diversity in K through 12 education of uh, chief Just, justice, John Roberts famously concluded that the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. It was like, what? <laughs> but during the oral argument, um, justice, justice um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, God rest her soul said, it is very hard for me to see how you can have a racial objective, but a non-racial means to get there. So she challenges the chief judge in saying that we can't have a discussion about the about race and society without involving the conversation of race. But what we have is a concerted effort to eradicate a race race, <laughs> you know, for lack of a better term, you know, uh, um, and uh, to have this a colorblind appeal of history that doesn't uh, doesn't factor in context and perspective. Um, so. Uh, Terrence, are you still with us? I think Terrence might have, I think we might have lost Terrence. (laughs) Um, But, I mean, what are your thoughts, though? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, I I think that was a tortured interpretation of the U.S. and the U.S. Constitution by um, Chief Justice Roberts. I mean, uh, he's a brilliant legal scholar, but, you know, his it, I thought that he just, he simply just came down on the wrong side of the issue. And, you know, his analysis on that um, in that decision was, you know, I think it was clearly pretty flawed. But, yeah, the beauty of America uh, or, or one of the beautiful things about America is that, you know, we have this idyllic melting pot. Right. Um, you know, this is supposed to be the 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 country that. Um, you know, whoever you are, no matter what your background is, you know, you can make it. 
the truth of the matter is, is that, you know, we are not a melting pot that would assume that we would meld into one particular, you know, race and ideal. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, you're no longer black, you're American. Um, no, we still have Irish Americans. We have Italian Americans. We have German Americans. We have, you know, Native Americans. You know, we have African Americans. And that's cool. Like, we love the the fact that, you know, we have all these different cultures and races in this country. And that ought to be celebrated. The problem is when you assign benefits based on that, you know, those those ethnicities and, and racial identities. So, you know, again, we've been pervasive in, in doing that over the history of this country. And it does erode if you have an idyllic sense um, that America's honor can never be dis- besmirched by ugly issues such as race. Then, yes, um, talking about slavery and talking about all of the atrocities that have been perpetrated and um, reinforced by this country, that is an indictment and you probably don't want it, but it doesn't mean that it didn't happen. Right. And, you know, just like there was apartheid in South Africa, they tell the truth about apartheid in South Africa. You know, they tell the truth about, um, you know, the Holocaust in Germany. Right. Why can't we tell the truth? about the racial injustices that have built this country. What does that because what it does it it tear it tears away the perfected image that America was born out of pure intentions, right? It was it tears away the image that our founders came on to came to this country and decided, you know, like hey, we're going to we're going to be here. Not not uh, involving there were people already here, mm-hmm. right? They colonized an entire right. land, mm-hmm. right? It says, uh, and then when they were here, the people decided to just move out the side and go ahead and give us the let us toil the land, mm-hmm. right? And the westward expansion was because we were bold and we had a view of how we want to expand America. Not that we were trying to coalesce land and we were trying to move people out here who had established. Um, cultures and society and customs and traditions on that particular piece of land, mm-hmm. right? So it takes away the myth, the mythology of America, and it reveals the ugly part that, you know, we were born out of an imperialistic ideal, and 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 that imperialistic ideal may not have been conquering territories around the world initially, mm-hmm. but it was imperialistic in our ideal of you know importing la- labor. Mm-hmm. And also moving out human beings and clearing out land that was not that was already in possession. Yeah. You know, and the other thing, you know, even as we're talking about, you know, Native Americans, you know, I think it's important that we also understand that, you know, the Native Americans weren't simply evicted from their land. Um, And I, I I try to find the right term to use for uh, the the destruction of, you know, the Native American community, you know, when, you know, pilgrims, I guess, is maybe the right term, you know, came to North America. The Native Americans got sick because of the diseases that those people were carrying. They weren't exposed to it. And so, you know, I'm not I'm not going to say it's biological warfare, but again, like they weren't simply evicted. A lot of them just got sick. Right. You know, and and died because of their interactions with as a result. 
yeah, as a result. And yeah. so it, you know, again, I think we just have to be courageous enough to tell the truth. Eric Holder, you know, our um, former attorney general said that we're a nation of cowards. And that hit, <laughs> that that hit a nerve. It struck a nerve with a lot of people um, because they knew it was true. Right. We don't want to talk about race in this country because it's ugly and it hurts. Right. Um, and we feel like it, you know, it makes certain people victims. Right. Um, and when I say, it, or, or I'm sorry, victims isn't the right term. Um, winners and losers, right? Yeah. In this uh, moral battle. Yeah. And so, yeah. You know, uh, um, one of the things I will say is that I keep saying one thing, but I, that's mm-hmm. just, uh, <laughs> but I, I, I I I view that their challenging of the concept of us challenging history, it makes them it, it's an erasure of their own personal identity, mm-hmm. and you know you often hear how you know people say oh you're trying to erase white white men what is the, the Charlottesville thing you would not replace us and mm-hmm. it was this ideal of you know feeling like the anxiety that they have of not being the dominant. Not being the dominant force, not having being seen as the heroic figure in their own story, mm-hmm. right? You don't want to be you don't want to be the the um, uh, the the bad guy, right. and you don't want your history to be deemed a bad guy. And I think honestly, that's where you know when you're trying to control people's thought process on education, this is what makes it so dangerous. When you're taking away people's uh, um, understanding or context of history, you're dumbing them down. Mm-hmm. And you're making them vulnerable to manipulation. And that's what happens. And that's where you see what happens right wing. That's what they want. They, right. they don't want an educated country. They don't right. want an educated union. They don't want an educated people. They want people who are dumbed down, who only take um, their understanding of facts from bullet points and mm-hmm. from narratives spun from media, media talking heads. Mm-hmm. And then that make, makes them feel like they're smart. And then you see them parroting those same things online. And when you challenge them, then they're like, oh, you're just trying to be divisive. Oh, mm-hmm. you're just not, you're not, you're not looking at the other side. Oh, you're not, you don't care about the about balanced conversation. No, I'm actually coming to you about facts. And, but you're, I can't argue with facts if you want to spin fantasy. Right. No, that's exactly right. I mean, you can't, it, it's difficult to even have the conversation with someone who doesn't want to deal with the same level of facts. And I think that's the reason why it's so dangerous. Right. I mean, it, it's dangerous for this democracy. Uh, I think President Obama said something recently about, you know, this democracy is not self-executing. Right. We have to work at it. And, you know, if you look at what the fundamentals of a democracy require, it requires a an electorate that is going to vote their own interests and their best interests. Yeah. And that doesn't happen when you can't, when you don't understand what your interests are, right. when your interests are colored by um, a an opinion that is not based in fact, yeah. and and has no factual foundation, um, you know that's that's the part that's so dangerous. You know, there were still even after all of the economic and social benefits that were assigned to you know white people. During, you know, the post-Civil War years, there still ended up, there were still poor white people. Right. But even though there were poor white people, um, or, 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 you know, the racism um, 
did not prevent the growth of, you know, poor white people. Like, it it right. still happened. Right. Right. So, you know, it just doesn't make sense why um, we even continue to. Yeah. Just just go down the road of uh, pretending like America can't even engage on race. Mm-hmm. Well, it's the it's the original it's the original sin, and I'm sorry, gentlemen. Yeah, you know the phone. You're fine. Said system You're said fine. system update at the worst time, right? You're fine. You're fine. <laughs> um, but but you're right. It, it it's the original sin of America. So I went to Texas A and M. Right, mm-hmm. it was a very conservative school. And in one of the classes, it was a comparative education class. We were looking at education systems around the world. Uh, and a, a, a young lady from the area, College Station, Texas, um, posted that she's, she was glad that America was founded on religious principles. And I rose my hand and said, that is absolutely the, the greatest lie ever told. I said, the folks that came here first came to rape, steal, pillage, and conquer. I said, none of that is about religion. I said, all of that is about economic gain and power. And I said, the ways in which the folks that came here treated the folks already here set up a dynamic that put a stain on this country. And I said, until we address that issue of the original sin of this nation, I said, there would never be any prosperity, any peace, any of those things until those sins are atoned for. And the whole class just erupted. That's a Marxist thing to say. Oh, you're one of those commies, blah, 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 blah. And I said, whatever you all want to call it, the truth is still the truth. We've lied to people for so many years. I said, this country was not founded on religion. I said, this is by far not a religious country. And I said, if we actually practice the tenets of Judeo-Christian faith, I said, we would address and redress all of the systems that have uh, negatively impacted all marginalized communities. Exactly. And the professor was, the yeah. professor was eating it up. He was like instigating the conversation. Of course, of course, right? Yeah. And the scary thing, gentlemen, this was a class full of superintendents, school mm. principals, lead teachers, even community-based teachers. And I looked in that classroom. I was a lone person fighting that fight. So are we willing to be the lone ranger to fight that fight, to carry that discussion forward? We're going to have to. Are we willing? We're going to have to. You know, we're going to have to because it's for the sake of our future and our generations of children. And I told that group, I said, the scary thing is, I said, you all are superintendents and principals and teachers, and you all think like this. Mm, I said, so I can only imagine how you treat children that look like me in your school. Well, well, let's even let's even parlay on that. I can only imagine the educational standard in which you're giving to your particular school, because, you know, one of the funniest arguments, oh, you know, we don't want we don't want critical race theory to be taught in our school. And my thing is like. Well, I don't even want to be taught. I don't want to be taught in K through twelve because I don't trust you all to handle the material right the appropriate way. Exactly. You know exactly. You know what I mean? I don't trust y'all to do it. Like y'all might y'all might fuck it up to the point where you might really really mess people up down the line. Right. And that's why it's a it's a a particular subject 
that you can't even speak about until you had advanced learning. Mm, that's right. On, exactly. on you know on, on history and economics and law. Mm-hmm. Like you can't have that sub- conversation. Yeah. You know, so I thought this whole, you know, uh, uh this whole uh, uh kerfuffle surrounding uh, um critical race theory, we don't want it through K through 12. I found it hilarious. I'm like Nobody, people on this level are not equipped to have those conversations. Right? They're not, not equipped. There, nope. are co- there, there are college professors who are not equipped to have that conversation. <laughs> exactly. So let alone, not no disrespect to high school and middle school teachers. Right. But y'all, in, they're not equipped for that. Yeah. One thing I will say though is that I do think that our schools need to be more thoughtful about figuring out how to engage the topic of race. So. One, I ended up being an English major in college, and I remember growing up, you know, hating to read. I, I didn't, I didn't like books. I, I did not want to read. Uh, I was actually a late reader, and um, I want to say it was between like ninth and tenth grade. We had summer reading, and they gave you like a, a list of like twenty books to read. You just had to read two. One of the two that I read was like I found the shortest books on the list. Like that was like my <laughs> right, thing. Right, and the sh- like one of the shortest books on the list was. Um, the autobiography of an ex-colored man by James Weldon Johnson. I, I believe it's James Weldon Johnson. And it was like 120 pages. And that was the first book that I ever read in an academic context that really engaged um, on the subject of like black identity in America. Right. right? Um, and that like, it blew my mind. That became one of my favorite books. Right. right? And um, I'm just like, why isn't like, why uh, everybody should be reading this. Yeah. Like not just, yeah. not just like me as, as a black man, but like uh, the, the white kids should be reading this too. Right. Because it's talking yeah. about yeah. like my lived experience. If I have to read, you know, Jane Eyre and, you know, great expectations and, and whatever, if I have to read, you know, Huck Finn or whatever, I don't, I don't even know what, you know, kids are reading nowadays in school. But if I have to read about, the lived experience of, um, you know, white kids, which is fine. I think it would be fair for them to live, to read about the lived experience of, you know, black kids in the United States. And, and just like, I think that it would be fair for us to read about and understand the lived experience of, you know, Asian Americans during World War Two, or even or or, yep. or not even World War prior to World War Two, they're yes. they're coming into this country and helping build up the railroad system, right? You know what I mean? And, right. and, and they they are part of the foundation of the cracks of this country, right? You know, and so that's important, right? And what are their lives like, right? Because that's what and and see, that's the thing. That's why sixteen nineteen project was so, so important, exactly. Because it, it would yes, it was not historically accurate in every single aspect, but it provided a lens of life of how people in that particular i i uh through that particular era looked at america through their lens yeah but i'm gonna push back who said it wasn't accurate depiction right i mean there are some historians who are like saying that it wasn't entirely accurate as far as depiction and that's you but know, the way but, but the ways in which we have romanticized um uh uh 1521 to 1865 has been built on shrouds of lies. Right. You know, you know, George Washington had his slaves teeth ripped out of their mouth and put in his mouth. Right. You know, he, he was not, 
this saint that people painted him out to be. Thomas Jefferson, um, you know, was engaged in, in, in child trafficking and raping of a 14-year-old girl, Sally Hemings, right. who he did not free at his death. Right. You know, John Adams, who had um, issues of bipolar and mental illness, but also had unfavorable views of black people. Benjamin Franklin, who had, I mean, so all of these people that we revere as, Listen. as pillars of our society were deeply flawed men. And we as people need to understand that you can be a genius, but you can also be evil and flawed. Listen. They both go hand in hand. Abraham Lincoln looked at black people as, mong- uh, as a mongrel race. Right. The, the, the great emancipator. Yeah. <laughs> so, so. And and again, he did not emancipate black folks because right. it was the right thing. To no, do. he was looking to preserve the union. the union. Yeah. You know, and 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 the thing is, you know, it's I think it's OK. Like we we want to, like, hide our ugly past um, as a country <clears throat> from the public. And I think from ourselves, like. You know, we keep a family member that we don't like. You know, if you if you have um, somebody who has like a drug addiction in your family, maybe you don't post about them on on Facebook and Instagram so much. Right. Right. And that's how we treat or you only post about like uncle such and such. You know, he's he's the best person ever. But, you know, you don't we're not willing to confront some of the ugly truths and embrace them. You know, we we try to put that behind us um and and keep it away from us like it's not reality but the truth is you know there are people in this country that deal with drug addictions there are people that in this country that deal with like mental health issues and and we should look at this the history of this country um in a similar way where it's like no we're not perfect you know we are not perfect as a country and that's okay you know it's it, part, it's part beauty there's beauty in imperfection yeah there, there really is i mean and when so, you when you hide away imperfection, it yeah. it creates a false narrative, and then it makes people it makes it disingenuous, and the authenticity of that love and dedication to that country is challenged much more easily. Yeah, exactly. Because if I don't know who you are, mm-hmm. and I get and then I receive the real you, mm-hmm. just like in marriage or anything. Yeah. Then I see the real you. I'm like, oh, I don't want. I'm, I'm going to end this marriage. Exactly. You know. Cause this so is, think about so so think about brothers how our children feel in school absolutely mm-hmm. when they don't, when they don't feel the authenticity of teachers that don't look like them and in some cases they look like us but have been conditioned to be anti-black right, right? Mm-hmm. so what about that young person that has a light and a fervor in elementary school and the research says by the time a black kid has gotten out of the third grade we're not even talking about middle school the third grade they have already developed negative attitudes towards schooling and education based on the ways in which their teachers I, I, have treated them. Listen, Absolutely. actually, I can I can attest to that personally. Yeah, so. likewise. So, likewise. Yeah, yeah, I, you know, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, particularly today, uh, we have to be vigilant about the way that we are um, educating our kids in in the home as well so you know i i come from a family where you know we my my parents had black art all over the house yeah and you know they had black books and literature same here all over the house and even though i didn't like to read them at the time you know Mm -hmm. i i appreciated 
you know, black, I, I have my black um, right. heroes right. Um, throughout my house. And my parents taught me history and didn't simply rely on yep. what I was supposed to, Same you know, here. learn in school. My mom was a um, corrections officer and, you know, she, she told me stories about the history of the correction system, the Florida Department of Corrections. Um, and you, you kind of get this idealized, you know, well, you know, she's a police officer, da, 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 but she was telling me the truth about the, the ugly history that the Florida Department of Corrections has um, when it comes to, you know, uh, lynchings and incarcerations and, and things of that nature. And so, you know, we have to be, to a certain extent, um, I understand, you know, maybe, you know, parents are, they want to be able to control how um, some of these really, really important issues are um, presented to their children. I, I understand that. Um, I do think that they should be presented to it in public school because it's, it's factual history. Um, but I also believe that as parents, we have to be vigilant about making sure that we are telling our kids the truth um, and we're presenting them with an accurate depiction of history. Um, so, so I have a I have a I have a question to that. Sure. What about those who don't have access to that in their families? That, now, that is true. So, so my thing is this. You're paying your tax dollars for your children to be educated. Mm hmm. So that means the educational structure that you're funding should have a robust, high quality education and access to that education, mm -hmm. which means that education should be for all of those students by virtue of you paying your taxpayer dollars. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so for the kids who may not have parents who know their history, um, um, I grew up, um, I, I, uh, my I had a grandfather around who lived in the 20s and the 30s, and his compadre uh, also lived. So I got a very real education early on. My father died when I was four years old. Mm. And so um, he turned 40 and passed away. So I didn't have the luxury or the, or the opportunity to learn from him. Mm. But I was blessed to learn from a man who was in his 80s who had lived through a number of things. Mm. And in third grade, when I started reading The Soul of Black Folk by mm -hmm. Du Bois, right. I had questions. That was the first time I discovered I was black. Mm. I was about five years old. And I asked my grandfather, I said, what, is, what does it mean to be black? What does that mean? Because I didn't know. I thought we were all people. Mm -hmm. And he started laughing and he said, it's going to take you a lifetime to unravel that. Mm. And from his teaching, this is why the elders in our communities are important. Yeah. Because their life history, you know, in the black tradition, the oral history is a premium. We don't have access to as much of that as we used to, right? In our public education system, um, this Eurocentric model does not work well for people of color. And so there has to be a new way, a new envisioning of how do we connect family history, community history, or community knowledge and family knowledge to our uh, traditional academic teaching. And uh -huh. that's where the pushback comes. Yeah. 
because the structure of schooling is antithetical to those ideals, those, those ideals and, and so forth. So, you know, it is going to take courageous leadership at the local level, at the school board level, at the state politician level to get these people out and to get folks into those positions to really, truly put in a structure to really educate our children and to even prepare our teachers because colleges of education are bastions of white supremacy as well. So we just have to be real about things. The ways in which we prepare teachers perpetuate and preserve these anti-black structures that we find in schools. But we're not ready to have that conversation. So I wanted wanted, uh, to piggyback off of that and what uh, Lyndon mentioned about um, reading. So what I found fascinating about that story, Terrence, is that you were able to pull from a lived experience of your ancestors, right? And I thought, you know, it was interesting. Lyndon talked about uh, Huckleberry Finn. And what, mm-hmm. is the, and what is the importance? Like Mark Twain was one of his, uh, his biggest claims to fame or why he was pushed up in literary circles because he had the authenticity of life around that time. Yep, and it wasn't because Mark Twain was he was saying he made up his own words, his own phrasing of st- uh, statements. He wasn't it wasn't like he was following a a, a linear under linear um, English standard mm-hmm. of, <laughs> of of of, of writing, mm-hmm. right? But it wasn't about the linear standard of writing. It was culturally con. That's what they told right. us. It was mm-hmm. co- uh, cultural context, mm-hmm. and that. But it was important that we read this stuff mm-hmm. so we could understand the lives but, of them. But but. but, but but even then, that particular text was traumatizing to black students. Absolutely, absolutely. And we, and we kept and, and we and the structure kept it in there, right? Disregarded those students. Absolutely. But you see, with the they they highlighted and they promoted it, it propagated this ideal of we had to learn this imagery, we have to learn this life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, but when it comes to our lives, it's not as important. Right. And so when we talk about separate but equal, right, equality in education is not just having the same access to education as far as I get to go to the same class as you, be in the same building as you. Mm-hmm. I get to take the same math course as you. Mm-hmm. But it's also equality in, in cultural understanding because I can't have a understanding of myself, but I have a better understanding of you. Right. And you know what? Um Another thing that I also think is really important is we have to make sure that we are um, painting a complete picture and that and that our schools are painting a complete picture of, um, you know, different racial identities. So they'll 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 present to you, you know, Birmingham bus boycott Montgomery version of Martin Luther King, but they're not presenting 1967, you know, why I'm against, you know, the war in Vietnam, Martin Luther King. They're certainly not talking to you about Marcus Garvey or Malcolm X. Right. Right. They're not talking about um, those. um, They talk about the safe Negro. Yeah. Yeah. The the docile. They they talk about. Well, one thing, one thing that I'll say is that I, you know, to this day, have not watched the George Floyd video. I am sick and tired. I have, I have, I'm sick and tired of of watching um, black trauma play out on TV, and right. I won't do it. 
I won't do it. Um, I'm, I'm not interested in it. And, 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 and when I say I'm not interested in it, I'm not interested in, in rehashing um, that type that of trauma. Yeah, that trauma for me. Now, you know, we have to be mindful about the stories that we tell because there were strong black figures um, that were not just on this peaceful protest and that without, um, you know, but for, you know, the sacrifices um, and the fights that, you know, different groups had to undertake, we would not be experiencing some of the benefits that or a lot of the benefits that we're experiencing today. And so, you know, simply telling the story about like docile, um, servient, um, you know, black people or Asians, that was another narrative that is too often portrayed or the perfect, uh, the perfect minority. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, The The modern modern minority. minority. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, That is too often replicated um, in, you know, history and that's presented to kids. Um, we have to be a lot more um, thoughtful and fair about the images that we're portraying because, you know, we've been an intellectual. Yeah, we've been resistant. We've been thoughtful. We've been um, strong. um, And revolutionary and and radical. and, And revolutionary and radical, you know, all at the same time. And so we have to be willing to engage those stories. And again, I think that that information needs to be taught at public schools in public schools, because we're willing to talk about the violence um, of the civil war and the American revolution. Why is that? Right. That was, that was white on white violence. Right. 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 (laughs) You know, the Boston tea party was an act of terrorism. And I don't know why people don't understand this. Come on now. So, you know, why is it that... But we, we, we've, hero- we, we've made it heroic for the Boston Tea Party, right. though. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're heroes. Yeah. The American Revolution. Yeah. Right? But why isn't the rest of the revolution um, idealized in the same way? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it's astounding, man. We, we have to be vigilant about engaging on these issues. And, you know, when there's pushback, like, you know, from Ron DeSantis, I mean, I, I, I really do tune him out. I, I don't listen to him just because I know that if his mouth is moving, it's probably just some type of foolishness that's coming out. Right. And so, um, you know, we just have to make sure that we are vigilant about telling the truth and, and also sharing it because what I've also learned is that there are a lot of people that I think would be willing who who are not from who don't have the same background that I have and haven't had the same exposure to issues that I that I have. Um, they don't have my racial identity, but they would be willing to consider this, you know, some of these issues if they're presented with them. Right. right? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, Michael Rubin, um, who's with the Reform Alliance, he talked about um, he he didn't know anything about like mass incarceration and the the issues with you know probation and parole before he got involved with Meek Mill and his right. case. Like he was totally oblivious to it, right? But once he did, he he went all in on that issue, and I think that that's one of the reasons why we have to be willing to talk and tell the truth, talk about and tell the truth about um, race in America, because it can only serve to help um, a preserve the union, but improve the union. Well, you have to talk about race and diaspora, right? Yeah. And so, because I, I, I was thinking about, as you y'all were talking, when I was a child, my mother taught me, you know, she 
uh, gave me history books to read because mm-hmm. it wasn't it wasn't enough. Like to the point where I had an I- negative imagery of just black people, and that's why she made me learn about African history. Right. Because it's like she's like, I want you to have an understanding of Europe. Europe, you come from a great people. You come from a great bloodline. See. And See. and she said she wanted me to learn about great figures. In black African American history, she said, "I just don't want you to learn about rebel civil rights people because right. that just means that they are people that are great in that ra- that realm, but they're right. also great in struggle. Mm-hmm. I want you to know people who are great in business, who are great in agriculture, who right. are great in inventing, who are great mm-hmm. in just other aspects of li- of living, because that is going to give you a whole perspective of yourself. And I will say, one thing that really uh, it was in, I didn't know this until college, but it's uh, a guy blew my mind." I, you know, I was talking about, you know, minorities around the world. And it was African. And he said, why do you keep calling minorities around the world? I said, what, what do you mean? He said, there are, you know, you're not a minority. I said, what do you mean? He said, there are more black people in this world than there, than there are anybody else. I said, this yeah. sci- scientifically, this is a world of color. White is an anomaly. Right. And he said, there are yeah. more. That's- he said, that's what he told me. He was like. He said, think about it. He said, there are more on the continent of Africa. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there are more black people, mm. you know, than the entire spectrum of the world. Right. You know, and then so he said, there are more Asian people in the world than anybody. Right. You know, and so, mm-hmm. um, and so, you know, he, he said, you got, we have to stop thinking of ourselves as a minority to the point where when you look on a map, Africa is not truly represented in its, in its size. size. Yeah, it's not. It's in it, most people think America and Africa are like kind of like the same size, and it's like, right. yeah, they're not even. It's, no, it's, it's not even close. They're not even close. The continent yeah. is so massive that I always like to say it takes three hours to fly from uh, a Cape Town to Johannesburg. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> three hours in the same country. In the same country. Yeah. It takes 3 hours to fly from Florida to New York. Right. <laughs> right. The entire eastern seaboard. They missed that. You know, they missed that. So you, know, Af- so you all touched on y'all touched on something very important. And the ways in which we have been conditioned as black Americans. Uh our history did not start with the diaspora. Right. And and this is what I told a group of superintendents. I said the history of black folk did not begin with slavery. Right. I said, in fact, it began, you know, some thousands of years, you know, and I said at the height of civilization in Africa, I said, you look at the empirical evidence in Europe doesn't paint quite such a civilization. Yeah. I said, so we have to be mindful in the ways in which we are encouraging young folk to learn about what it means to be black. To be black is just not about being an African-American or being black in America. You have an entire pedigree of history that spans the dials of time. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I told the superintendent, I said, you say little Johnny can't read and he has a problem reading. I said, but that's quite impossible because his ancestors built the pyramids. They built structures of scientific feet that we cannot figure out today. I said that is a historical pedigree. But again, remember education um, is is supposed to inform, but it ends up being conformative to structures and systems. And there's a reason why they show civil rights videos, movies, images in black and white. Mm -hmm. Why haven't you seen any colored images? 
Well, they, they, their, their statement is that it was cheaper to, to record on, on black and white than it is in color, and that's why you know you see more film. But I mean, I, I know where you're going with it. That's what they, that's what they would, that's what they will tell you. Right. But there is, there are tons of artifacts in color. Right. When you present something in black and white, your mind scientifically creates a schema that suggests it was this, this, that this was a long time ago. Yeah. Y'all, my mother is in her 70s. She was born in the 40s. Mm-hmm. That wasn't that long ago. My oh. great-grandmother just passed. She told me that her grandmother was a slave. She was 100 and something years old when she passed away. Mm-hmm. So this is not that long ago. Right. But if we can desensitize our youth and our young people through our educational system, then we don't have to worry about addressing those issues as they get older. You know what I love? But then it's created. Go ahead. You know what I I love to tell tell people? Harriet Tubman was born, when Harriet Tubman was born, Thomas Jefferson was alive. Mm -hmm. And when Harriet Tubman died, Ronald Reagan was alive. Right. See there? You know, and, yeah, so, and I've been in, and clearly I've been in a lot, I've been, I have been uh, alive when Ronald, Ronald Reagan, Reagan, when he was alive. So our timeline, we have not been here that long. Right. But we, they make us feel like Harriet Tubman was so long ago, but it was like, that's like two generations. I yeah. mean, I'm not two generations, but it was like, it was only a few, few generations ago. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, there, there are a ton of people alive right now that were born in the 60s, right? You right. know, there are people you know, right now, and, and granted, I, I used to joke with, um, you know, some older family members, y'all know what colored water, <laughs> you know, tastes like, because, right. you know, they drink out of colored water fountains. Right. Like, I mean, and just to put it in context, you know, there are people in that grew up here in Orlando and Central Florida that didn't know why they were going to a school on the other side of town. Right. It was because, yeah. you know, it, it was it was busing. Right. You know, we were still under a federal mandate to bus in right. this in this county. Right. right. And, you know, the truth is that, you know, when we're talking about Florida and Florida history, um, particularly when it comes to, to race issues, you know, it's ugly and that's bad it's for ugly. business. It, 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 it's let, let's just be honest. It's bad for business. And so if we don't tell that story, then we can, you know, move, move away from it from a business perspective, right? And so now we don't have to talk about, you know, uh, the Groveland boys. Uh, we don't have to talk about, you know, uh, the Ocoee massacre. We don't have to talk about all the extrajudicial, you know, lynchings um, that have plagued this um, this state. And we're not talking about forever ago. We're talking yeah, about, yeah. like, in our lifetime. Right. You know, like, mm-hmm. the people that perpetrated, you know, the... Um, the prosecution and, and murder of, you know, some of those Groveland boys, like they were alive, like during my, like I could have been, right. <laughs> you know, right. um, prosecuted by yeah. some of those same individuals. Right. You know? Right. I mean, it, it's just, it's astounding. Um, the people who were, te- who uh, propagated the, the, the Ocoee massacre were also, um, shop owners and school teachers and, right. school, I mean, and you see, you see, do you see, yeah. Members of the clan were preachers. Right. Right. So, so CRT is so important because it helps us examine every facet and every structure in our lives. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I posed a question to a group of ministers. These were these ministers didn't look like you and I, brothers. I said, How can we pray to the same God when one God was used to inflict and oppress 
And the other God, the same God, was used to liberate and empower. I said they can't quite possibly be the same God. And it stumped them. It stunned them. Because And you're reading from the same book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But no, 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 no. They took the book and they co-opted and created their own Bible. They took right. things out. Right. And so they took things out and made their own Bible. So it is important, gentlemen, brothers, that we you know, teach a full history and we give students the opportunity to engage with these these ideas and, and thoughts and perspectives so they can make their own determinations, their own their own journeys, right? Instead of us trying to prescriptively give them to indoctrinate them. And this is what all this is about, is to preserve institutional privilege. Uh, yeah. And that institution is unraveling. Yeah. And folks are having temper tantrums because the world is not going to look like you in the next 30 years. Yeah. Yeah. What are you going to do? They are afraid that we will do the same thing to them that they've done to us. That is actually the premise of what is why they're fighting and why they're angry and why they are, you know, trying to preserve. It's the last it's the last war for them. It's the last war. And then so and they they see it slipping. But you know what? At the end of the day, even if when they become, quote unquote, the, the minority, what they don't understand is that if we wanted to hurt people <laughs> culturally, yeah. we could have done it a long time ago. But that's not that's not inherent with that, even though they want to put that like, you know, black people are more dangerous or they, they tend to be a little bit more reckless or, you know, we tend to be more uh, adhered to crime. If that was the case. It would have been bloody for you would have had a hundred year bloody war yeah. in this country. But no, we are compassionate. We are loving. We are we uh, we are gifted by God's divine to the point where we have a grace within us that extends to you, even when you don't show us the same thing. That's right. That's you right. know that is true. That uh, is true. That is true. So I want listen. I, I'm I want to uh, go ahead and wrap this up. So I'm going to give y'all uh, give y'all a, a space to how y'all you know, see us going where you see going. And I'm starting with you, uh, Terrence. You know, as an educator, I, I started off as a high school teacher, um, very young. I was 19 when I started teaching high school. I graduated college when I was 19. Um, and I found my way in college and I went back to graduate school and in, in the whole quest of, of humans is to understand the world around them. And it is important that we provide a high-quality education across the spectrum for everyone. Um, But that education is to help empower us beyond our human capabilities to make things better. And critical race theory um, is not a negative. It's a positive. And it helps us examine the ways in which we can make things better for everyone. It's just not for a certain group of people, but we have to be willing and open and open-minded to release the structures that confine the way we think and the way we live to create a reality and an experience where we can engage in those conversations. And until we get to that point to where we're ready and able to challenge our assumptions, challenge uh, what's near and dear to us, challenge our biases. We're going to keep having the new buzzword, the new flavor of the month. Now it's critical race theory. It's going to be something else next year. It's going to be right. something after that. Yeah. 
It's always we're always going to be chasing this rabbit until we attack the structures yeah. that create this hysteria, and until people are willing um, to to fight that good fight, we're going to keep having these types of podcasts. But I want to encourage everyone to keep having that fight. You know, if you see a good fight, get into it. You know, use your tools, use what you have at your disposal. Mine is tech and education. I work at a university where we're trying to advance um, high-quality academics at a, at a collegiate level for folks to engage in a globalized society. Your gentlemen, y'all are from the legal perspective. We need everyone in our community to jump into this fight and use what gifts they have uh, for the betterment of just not our people. We do need that, but for the betterment of mankind, because if not, we're not going to make it as a, as a species of people. How are you going to follow that up, Lyndon? Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, uh, the, the noobs are going to bring it home. But Oh, okay. <laughs> but, yeah, I, you know, Terrence, I, I really appreciate, you know, your perspective and, and your comments and, and um, you know, just the insight that you've given to uh, this particular issue and the work that you're continuing to do. So it's really invaluable. Um, I, I, I just sincerely appreciate uh, you and your work. Um, you know, one of the reasons why the Axis powers lost World War II is because they were a society of anti-intellectuals. They were burning yep. books. They were yep. um, killing off scientists that um, were presenting data that was contrary to their idyllic um, images. Mm-hmm. Um, they were murdering, um, you know, people. It was bad for the economy. Like it, it, it was. It, it, they were fighting a war against themselves, right? They were, it, con- they were contrasting, right? Yeah, contracting. Yeah, contracting. Yeah. Um, you know, as as a country. Now, mind you, this is you know Germany and Austria, some of the um, some of the greatest thinkers that the world has ever produced have come from this from that country, right? Some of them. And this is, you know, one of the, at the time, you know, most advanced countries, you know, in the world. And they devolved in a span of, you know, a a few decades, right? 20 years. Yeah. Into um, just a, a radicalized anti-intellectual society that ultimately brought, you know, you know, caused the death of, you know, millions all over the world and um, brought an end to the to their country as, as they knew it. Um, that happened, you know, just, you know, a generation and, and a half ago. And if the United States is not courageous enough to confront the issues of race and um, inequality uh, head on then and we continue to um, head down this path of anti-intellectualism and, and and it's not the entire country it's it, it there are leaders a lot of leaders um, that are continuing to peddle these lies then you know we will we we run um it, it, we could potentially repeat that same history. Um, You know, so in order for 
us to advance as a country, um, you know, we have to be courageous enough to talk about race, tell the truth about history and um, address you know, critical race theory. And when I say address, we need to engage um, the topic uh, thoughtfully. So it it does belong within academic discourse. Um, It does belong in our schools at the appropriate age um, and taught by the uh, appropriate instructors. But yeah, we we have to be courageous enough to do that. Absolutely. That was good. That's right. Yeah, that was, that was dope. And you're right. Like it's, it, if we are not careful, we can descend into a society of, we can contrast, right. you know, not saying you, that we, you saw it. Yeah. You saw it in the past four years. Right. Yeah, that's true. That is very true. And that was, and, and, and t- t- go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, and I was, I'm, I'm just going to say how quickly yeah. we devolved. So the, the funny thing about that is you saw it within the last four years, but we promoted a person who is admittedly an anti-intellectual, yep. yeah. and then he yep. and he we wanted him to be our representation to the world, you know, and that is that is the most what is the most dangerous parts about his election, not his uh, fanfare, not his r- r- rhetoric. All those things were were are dangerous, but is what did the Bois say? What did the Bois tell us? Right, either America will eradicate ignorance. Or ignorance will destroy America. Right, and we what we wanted, we said we want ignorance to be our representation. You know, and, and so and he appointed more people like him around him. Right, it's funny. Right, and so uh, Lyndon, unlike you said, you said you're going to take it home. It's actually my show, and so the the bras are going to take this <laughs> on. So uh, you know, I'm going to say this: <laughs> the uh, conservative argument that racism exi- only exists when people are criticizing non-white conservatives or defending racism is a load of trash. Uh, America is—they like to say—is not America. America is not a racist country. But if we teach America about its racist ideals or a racist history then we, be, we bring up the ugly spectrums of race that's a hell of an argument but it's not true the political answer to America being a racist country or whether or not we are we cannot uh, peel back the layers of race in society because we're afraid of mythology or dethroning our mythology is an ideal of protectionism of white identity politics yep it's wild to me that folks get up in arms about their kids being taught critical race theory. Meanwhile, black parents have had to deal with lies and half truths and blatant omissions of our own history that were taught to our children since our community has been allowed to get educated with the inception of the 13th, 14th, 15th amendment allowed. I do air quotes because we weren't allowed to read. We weren't really allowed to vote. We weren't allowed to live until we had to fight for the equality of those things. Because, yes, it might have been in the law that they had, we had the privilege of it, but being allowed to do something is totally different. And if you understand history and context and law, you understand those two different things can have a diverting road. You have a privilege to go ahead and be rich in America. Everybody has a right to be rich, but you're not allowed to. Because that's not the way society's constructed. Only a certain amount of people can be successful. 
But you do have the privilege to do it because we are a free economic state. Yes, our kids need to learn about history, but they also need to learn about oppression. They have to learn yep. about economics. They need to learn about yep. they need to learn about the context of how this country is built. And when you do that, not only will the individual have a whole sense of themselves, but we'll have a whole sense of our country and we'll become better for it. And that is what we need to do. And that is what we need to push. So I thank everybody for listening to this podcast. It was a long one, but it's actually something I thought it was an important podcast. And I wanted to give it the room to run. And I want to preach. I want to uh, say thank you to my frat, Dr. Kidd. And I want to say thank you to my good friend, Mr. Carter, you know, and, you know, listen, because it was all three of us and we were actually um, trying to hope we gave you guys some like straightening on how the things kind of, you know, view critical race theory. I kind of want to give a shout out to some three brothers that actually dropped the album that it's a hell of an album, by the way. And, uh, you know, and they uh, give us a theme of how we I feel like this podcast went straightening it out. So straightening, 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 yeah, straightening. Straining, straining, yeah. Don't not get straining, but straining. Don't not get straining, but straining. You don't get shit straight, you don't straighten.